Thanks, Evan and Brian. Well, our, our children's ministries um, is just taken off. I want to make a brief announcement before I jump into the sermon. And I think about a third of our church uh, is uh, probably like 10, age 10 and younger. So we need more volunteers, in particular guys. Okay, so let's, let's make a little, uh, little deal here. If the Vikings only lose by 21 or less, all the, all the men of the church will sign up for children's ministry. Is that a deal? <laughs> I'm not very confident about the Purple's chances today. But anyways, uh, we are going to have uh, the Vikings and Packers on a big screen uh, after church. Uh, I'd like to invite you to that as well. It's going to be a great time. Let me jump in. The Bible is the number one bestseller uh, of all any book. It's a be- that's the best, number one bestseller of all books uh, throughout the world in human history. It's been translate, translated in more languages than any book that's ever known. Also, it's among the most ancient pieces of literature that we have. And also, the major religions uh, of the world, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, revere it and respect it. It is a subject of tremendous controversy. At the same time, it's the source of immeasurable hope. And the, the Bible sells at a pretty brisk pace, but right around 9-11, it was interesting, between 9-11 and then Christmas of 2001, that the, the sales of Bible spiked about 25% during that time because people were desperately looking for some source, some, a modicum of hope and help during that time. And this morning what I want to do is dive in to this question, answering this question, is the Bible true and reliable? Because I think at any time in our culture, the Bible has been under attack, uh, not only by, by uh, secularists and non-Christians, but also Christians themselves. Is it really true and reliable? Uh, in a, a world that's full of relativity and pluralism, can we really come back to the Bible as true and reliable and authoritative for for my life? Because it seems like that sort of statement or that conclusion seems a bit antiquated. And I want to answer that question with three responses this morning. And we're in this series called FAQs, uh, Frequently Asked Questions. And I want to encourage you during the course of this month and also November, we're going to be tackling some of the toughest questions of Christianity and of God. Last week, if you missed, I encourage you to listen online as we uh, taught and discussed on how can a loving God allow evil and suffering to happen in this world and how God can allow Las Vegas to occur. And this morning, I want to ask that question, is the Bible true and reliable? And if the answer is yes, uh, how do we know that? And I'm going to provide a few responses to that. Let me pray before we start. Father God, thank you so much for who you are, and at the same time, in a, in a world that is fragmented, in a world that is broken, that your kingdom is fully present. It's fully present through uh, the actions and through the words of your people. And God, our desire this morning as we gather together, as Evan prayed, is to take another step forward, to walk away changed. And, and perhaps for some of us who've been here at church or been a, a Christian for a number of years, just a reminder about the Bible. And, and perhaps it's a way to recapture uh, the love of Scripture. And for those who are new to faith or perhaps they're seeking and checking things out, that for them to be exposed to some of the claims around the Bible, and perhaps that would uh, cause further discussion. God, our, our desire is not simply just for a uh, uh, impressive uh, worship service or an impressive sermon. Uh, our desire is to glorify you. Uh, our desire is to worship you. 
that's why we were made, that we are wired to worship you and you alone. In Christ's name we pray. Everybody said? Is the Bible true and reliable? I'm going to give you three responses. Yes, it is. It is because its origin proves its reliability. In your teaching notes, I want you to follow along with me. It's true and reliable because its origin. Uh, the Bible makes this, this central claim of the Word of God. There is no other book that we have that makes that claim. The Word of God. The Word of God. It's the origin no other book makes that unique claim. And, and, it, and, and also the Bible stands along in this terms of its authority and its influence and its power in our lives when we say it's the Word of God. And when we read the Bible and we open up the pages, what we're trying to say and believe in is actually these are the very words of God. And, and this morning, before we get going, you've got to ask yourself, do I really believe that? Or, or are, are these simply just some pages with some words and stories and myths and fables, some outlandish sort of stuff? Do, but, but do I really believe that this is the very word of God? Because back in the day of Jesus, they believed that. Now, I think in the 21st century, if there's anything we can do is to recapture that sensibility that they had in the first centuries, that, that for them, they had the Old Testament, but they believed that it was the very words of God. And as such, what they would do during their, their temple gatherings is they would pass around the Torah and kiss it because they adored it. They treasured it so much. That's why the Jewish people were known as people of the book, people of the Word of God. And that is my prayer and my hope for Maple Grove Covenant Church is to actually become people of the book. Otherwise, if it's not, then the Bible simply belongs on a shelf next to uh, the Great Gatsby or Eat, Pray, and Love or Blink. If it's just a book, it, it belongs on a shelf next to Harry Potter. But it's not just a book. It's the very Word of God. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. And this is a passage I haven't read for a while. It's just a nice reminder about what the Bible says about itself. So it's kind of, in a way, the Bible talking in the third person about itself. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Um, you can follow along with our teaching notes or our slides, or if you have a Bible app, you can pull that up as well. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. And this is, and this is Peter, so the model disciple. He was, he was like the example, the older one of the 12 disciples. He says, above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding. Okay? It, it did come from just human understanding. That's what he's saying. Or from human initiative. No. Those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Yes, humans did write the Scripture, but we need to understand its origin. It originated from God. God's word is God's idea. It's his. It was no one else's. And as we think about its origin is that it came from God. It's his, his idea uh, to, uh, to begin with. And that when it comes to God's word is to understand that. It's not someone else's idea. It's true and reliable because it, co it comes from, according to the Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, it's true and reliable because it comes from God himself. Do you believe that this morning? 
As, as we read verses 20 and 21, don't get tripped up by prophecy or prophets. All, all, all the writer's trying to simply say is, you know, when it comes to the prophets, the, the biblical writers and prophecy is Scripture. That's, what, that's what, what it's talking about here. And it comes from God, originated from God. And in, in originating the Bible or originating God's Word, I want to share something. God used what we call revelation. Not the book of revelations, but revelation. When we talk about revelation, revelation has to do with content. And there's no way that we can know the things in life without the Bible. There's no way that we can know that God is the creator of heavens and earth. There's no way that we can know that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, and he gave his life volitionally on the cross so that you and I could be forgiven for our sins once and for all, and enter a faith relationship, if we choose that, and then have an eternal destiny in heaven. There is no way that we can know that without the Bible. Revelation deals with content. And God has certain things in the Bible around content that we would not know otherwise. We would not know, for example, when we make that, that decision to volitionally accept Jesus Christ as the Savior and leader of our lives that we're given this supernatural gift called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is part of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and the Spirit resides inside of us. The Holy Spirit lives within us. It's just absolutely uh, miraculous. We would not know that has it not been God's Word. There's no way that we could figure out things like heaven and hell, prayer. There's no way we'd have access to wisdom and advice like, like we have without the Bible. At the same time, I want to deal with sort of the counter-argument, the counterpoint. There's plenty of life, plenty of things in this world that we know without the Bible. We know about geometry. We know about constellations. We know about music. We know about the Renaissance period. There's things that we can know without the Bible. We know about the stark contrast between men and women, right? We don't need the Bible to tell us that when it comes to women, men, uh, men and women, that there's differences. When Laura, Sarah, and Mindy go out for lunch, they affectionately call each other Laura, Sarah, and Mindy. But when John, Steve, and Tony go out for lunch, they will affectionately call themselves idiot, dork, and dorkus, right? We don't need the Bible to tell us that. And we also know that a woman has the last word in the argument, right? Wives, turn to your husbands, remind them of that. They have the last word in the argument, and anything a man says after that is the beginning of a new argument. <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. We, don't, we know these things without the Bible. We know that a married man should forget his mistakes. There's no use in two people remembering the same thing, okay? We know that. It's a bit of a tangent, but back to my original point. There's some things that we can know without the Bible, but the stuff that really matters, the core of, hu of human life, comes from the revelation of God through the Bible, the content in the Bible. We, we, we would not know that without God disclosing that to us. So its origin proves its truth and reliability. Next. The second uh, point in the teaching notes is that its inspiration supports its truth and reliability. Its inspiration. And when we use the word inspire or inspiration, you may want to write this down. It actually, the etymology of that word inspire means to sort of breathe out or outbreathe. It's to exhale. It's to breathe out. That's what that inspire means. 
And we find that, for example, in 2 Timothy 3.16. If you want to turn to that, 2 Timothy 3.16. And this is Paul. He's running to this young pastor named Timothy. And he wants to remind him of the inspiration of God's word. 2 Timothy 3.16. He says this, All Scripture is inspired, or in some translations, it's God-breathed. It's the same meaning there. Inspired, God-breathed by God, and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong with our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. Okay, it's important for us to know that, is that when we talk about inspiration, we're talking about this idea that God breathed out. In other words, his very breath and his very life are found in the words of Scripture. Hebrews 4.12, the Bible is alive. It's not just an ordinary book. It's not just a book that's been translated more than any book in the history of the world. It's not only the number one bestseller in the history of the world, but also it's the fact that these words contain the very life and the very breath of God. And by the way, if you're thinking, well, you know, we have different translations, is that really true? You've got to remember, when Paul is writing this, he's writing this, and he has in his hands, scholars believe, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Septuagint. So translations, yes. Paul is saying, even in translations, the Bible is alive, and it's, it's breathed, it's, it's God exhaled, and that we can trust in that, that God's his breath and his life are found within the very words of Scripture. And it's important for us to know that because when we read the Bible, because of the fact that God has inspired it and, and it's actually breathed out the words, it has a very distinctive personality, a distinctive flair to it because it's from God. When you look at a painting of a Rembrandt or a Monet or perhaps the drawing in the cartoons of Charles Schultz, you know, you know right away who drew that or who painted that because they have a distinctive style and distinctive uh, trait to their art. In the same way, when we come to God's Word, we know that. When we read it, we can tell that it's from God. It has His style, His personality, it has His voice. It has advice that is unlike any, anyone that we know. But you may raise your hand and object to that and actually raise up a question and say, well, you know what? Human authors are actually the ones that, that put pen to paper in writing and it's not actually God himself. Despite Second Peter chapter 1, let's say you just kind of ignore that for a moment. And you say, no, it was really these, these guys like, like Paul and Matthew, and they're human, and therefore they're vulnerable to the mistakes. And, and how do we really know that we can actually trust these words? Maybe there was a word wrong. Maybe there was a sentence wrong. How do we really know that? They're the ones that put the pen to paper. I want to give you an analogy. Uh, perhaps there's a professor in uh, behavioral science in University of Wisconsin-Madison, and, and perhaps she made recent discoveries and with research that she computes and stores and hangs on to that information, she asks her small team of graduate students to write some papers. And she hands over her notes and her data and her writings. She hands them over to these graduate students and says, hey, write papers on this. They had the, the freedom to write the papers, but at the same time as they're writing, she sort of kind of steps in and edits some of their content, like any good professor would do with her graduate students edit during the process. And then also before final submission, she would edit the entire paper before it goes to the publisher. 
I think in the very same way, it's exactly what it is with God in the Bible. Yes, we have human authors, but God was very involved in it. It does not diminish his inspiration. In a sense, he brought forth the words, the stories, and poems and moved the hands of men to write them. That's what we mean by inspiration. Or, or perhaps you may object and say, well, there's all these different translations. Like right over here, there's a few different translations. First of all, we have the New American Standard Bible. I got this in 1990. Uh, a good friend of mine, when I got for the first time really serious about reading the Bible, um, says May 7th, 1990. And this is a New American Standard Version, uh, the, NA, the NASB. And this is a word-for-word translation from the original language. Okay, so we have that one. And then we have the NIV. And this is something that many of you perhaps grew up with. And this is more of a thought-by-thought translation. So it's less literal than the New American Standard. And it's more of a thought-by-thought. And the one that we use on Sunday mornings is... Uh, the New Living Translation, this one right here. And this one is, is more about really getting at the heart and soul of, of the original language, but more in a vernacular, more in everyday speech, more in, in colorful language. So we have a number of translations, and you might think, well, gosh, in all these translations, something has to be lost, that actually God's words, God's thoughts, God's um, power and meaning in his word is lost in some way. And Robert Frost once said, well, everything is lost in translation, but you know as well as I do, those of you who have taken a foreign language, and mostly I would say the audience has done that in some way, you've taken a foreign language, and you know, you know from experience that's not true, that there's things that are clear and they're understandable and meaningful in translation. You don't need the actual original manuscripts to really understand the meaning of the Bible and what God is saying. And also, this is it. If we trust God, if we trust God is the source of the Bible, do you think he will allow the transmission and translation of his precious word to be up for grabs? That some guy in a cave in 200 B.C., in a dimly lit cave, is going to mess up some translation of the book of Ezekiel. Do you think he's going to allow that? We trust God, and he is the source. We need to trust that the, the word of God that we have is accurate. It's true. It's reliable. And I think more and more, as I mentioned in the outset, that today the God's word is under attack, I think both by Christians and also by secularists, that, that when it comes to God's word, that really the authority, and we don't like that, some of us don't like that A word, authority, that, that, the, the, that the Bible has authority in my life. It's more of a reference guide to do life and a nice moral guide or perhaps we, we wrestle with the fact that it's really the Word of God. And I think coming to grips with this right now in the 21st century, in 2017, is more important, more crucial than ever before. In the day and age that we live in. And I think for us, as we, as we go into the Bible, just a side note, doctrine's important to know, for example, who God is, to understand the nature of sin, the doctrine of, of humanity, the doctrine of salvation. Those things are great Those, as we kind of comb through and pull that out of the Bible, but at the same time, we cannot neglect the proper role of God's word in our lives. I think the question for us is not, not 
have you read the Bible lately? It's what kind of relationship do you have to the text? And if it's alive, what, what kind of relationship do you have with the text? What kind of relationship do I have? And at Maple Grove Covenant, we have no desire to, to increase uh, the attendance of our church simply by people believing in the Bible as a principle but not knowing of its power in their lives. We would make a big mistake in doing that. We want people to know there is great power in God's word. Yes, there's a number of principles, but we want people to know over and over, our children, our students, and our adults, that there is great power in God's word. It's like what Jesus said in Matthew 22, to, uh, verse 29, to a, to a bunch of elites that day, that they, they understand neither the scriptures nor the power of God. There's a power of God in the scriptures, and we want to know that power. And I want to share that in a couple of ways. The Word of God is the primary way that we come to understand the truth about God. The second of the Ten, ten Commandments says this, that we should forbid the making of images. These are pictorial uh, presentations of God for use in worship. And you may, you may ask why. Perhaps you grew up in a Catholic uh, background, and there's plenty, plenty of pictures and icons and things like that. If pictures and statues of God help us in, in prayer, uh, why would the commandments... Uh, be against that. Or for centuries, the Protestant church, that's the, that's the stream that we come out of, have argued that it is through the reading and teaching of God's word, through the work of the Holy Spirit, that we're given free reign to illumine the mind and the heart with truth. Images hijack truth. I believe that. Images can hijack truth, and we ought to be open with our minds and our hearts to what God's word teaches us. And allow those words to simply sink and indwell in our lives. Images present a pre-digested version of God's character, says one author. A couple years ago, the New York Times ran an article, article called Turn the Page, Spur the Brain. You can look this up in 2015. And they presented actually empirical findings showing that reading to children, even infants, is crucial to brain development. That reading to children, even infants, is crucial to brain development. They found that exposing children to a video or a picture sort of in a way short-circuited the child's imagination. One, one expert commented on this, that they're not having to imagine the story for themselves. It's being just fed to them. It's just being fed to them. Another expert pointed out that children who were exposed to reading showed significantly more activity in the areas of the brain that process visual association, even though the children was listening simply to the words of the story. Isn't that amazing? You and I are hardwired for story. And we don't necessarily need pictures or videos to do that for us. In fact, it can hijack or short-circuit our understanding and our imagination. Now, I don't want to denigrate the visual arts. I'm a supporter of that. I believe in pictures and images. I do them very often uh, in my sermons. You have a nice little visual here of FAQs. Uh, so I, I don't want to denigrate that. But at the same time, I think this article points out something very true about human nature. Is that the ancient Protestant understanding about the power of God to capture our hearts and in, uh, in, in through the word of God can happen in no way else. It's just opening up God's word. And for years for me as a Christian, I thought simply that, that God would be active in my life through the Spirit and the, and the Bible was more or less just sort of a, you know, a nice guide to 
for morality and, and to read what to obey. But I've come to the realization of that God uses the words in these pages through the work of the Holy Spirit to shape me, to form me, and his power is made manifest in my life. It's not simply a reference book. I want to share a couple of things. These are in your teaching notes. You'll find this on the slide too. And perhaps after going through all that, okay, it's origin, yeah, yeah. And then the whole thing about inspiration, yeah, yeah. How about evidence? Because we live in a world, obviously, we don't believe stuff until we really see it, smell it, taste it, feel it, right? Very tactile world, very material world in the sense of I got to see it, I got to taste it for me to really believe in that. Well, there's plenty of evidence. And this is simply a cursory example of evidence if you want to, uh, learn more about this. Uh, we have a number of websites. You can email me. I can send it to you. First of all, I'm going to break it into two categories, okay? External evidence. External evidence. Its evidence validates its truth and reliability. There exists 5,366 copies of the Bible dating from the time it was written to just 70 years after it. Okay? In ancient literature, when you look at that, there is nothing like that. Okay? Homer, Plato, you name it, there's, in terms of the original writings, they have a hard time really having that sort of close proximity between the time it was written and the years afterwards. Any time when it comes to ancient writings, and you had that short of a gap, which is a short gap, by the way, it's huge. You just, you're not going to find that in the ancient world. And also the number of manuscripts. You're not going to find that in the Odyssey. Um, you're not going to find that in, in Plato's Republic. You're just not going to find that many copies. The number of copies and the close proximity right there, that external evidence says a lot about the truth and reliability of the Bible. Also, external evidence includes many archaeological discoveries. Historians, I don't know if you know this or not, but for the longest time said there's no way, there's no way that Solomon had that many horses. Because in the Old Testament, it talks about him having tens of thousands of horses, and for the longest time, the contrarians would say, there's no way, but a recent archaeological dig found thousands and thousands of stables for horses. I think more and more, we're finding evidence, okay? Next, we also have the internal evidence of the Bible. Eyewitness accounts makes a big difference. It's throughout the Bible. People who actually saw it with their own eyes. They saw it with their own eyes what was going on. Moses saw the Red Sea split. He was there. Joshua was there when the city of Jericho fell. The internal evidence of eyewitnesses is very important. If you were to go to a court of law, if you were to have one or two eyewitnesses, you got a good chance of, of actually having your case made known actually winning the case. And we have numbers of eyewitness accounts. We have Esther, who is there. When her people, the Jewish people, almost got wiped out, but she courageously stepped in and risked her life. She was there, and she wrote it down. We have the disciples who saw the resurrected Jesus. They were actually there. And it's like in the, in the book of Acts, it says, well, if you, if you don't believe, if you don't believe uh, us, there's about... Eh, give or take 500 people that are around this time that, that actually know about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, I'm not sure about you, but 500 is pretty compelling to me. It's a good amount of people. And also we have this internal evidence too. In your teaching notes, you'll find this and also on the slide. We have in the Bible 40 different authors from three continents 
over the span of 1,500 years. And we have a consistency among the scriptures. We have a unity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. How in the world did that happen? The Bible is a remarkable and unique um, book in our lives. And some authors were royalty, some were poets, some were fishermen, one was a theologian, one was a physician, some were married, some were single. But perhaps, though, you, you, you finally kind of get to the end of it and you fold your arms, you said, that doesn't prove a single thing. Okay, yeah, the origin, yeah, yeah. Okay, inspiration, you know, well, that evidence, someone made that up somewhere. I don't believe it for a second. I can't force you to believe. I, I can't coerce you to believe that the Bible is true and reliable. You, you have to, you got to test it for yourself. You, you have to kind of take it for a, for a little a ride for yourself. And right now, we're really promoting this uh, new series of Bibles by theme called the Immersed Bible. I highly encourage you to stop by the kiosk out there and purchase one. They're only eight bucks. We have a card reader. Just charge it. And the first section is on the Messiah. And it takes the books of the Bible, sort of rearranges them, doesn't change any words, and puts them to themes. And this one's on the Messiah. It's a six-volume set, and we'll have another one in the wintertime. Our community groups are going through this, and I want to encourage you in your own personal devotions to take this for a ride, to actually try it for yourself. Because that's what it comes down to, is your own authentic experience with God's Word. Because you can have all the data, you can have all the arguments, but your personal experience can't be trumped. It reminds me of a time where... Uh, for the longest time, I was very simplistic in, in what I ate. Meat, potatoes, and corn, and once in a while, green beans. That's it. Grew up on a farm. And finally, I, I had a couple of friends after college, like, Craig, you got to try, try Chinese food. I never tried it. Would not try it. Didn't want to. And, you know, they would say, Craig, you're, you're missing out. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm very happy with my roast beef and steak and, you know, that pork chops and all that kind of stuff. I don't need Chinese food. I didn't have Chinese food until I was 31, by the way. I'm honest, dead honest. Finally, at the age of 31, I thought, you know what, I need to try this for myself. Now, my, my friend could have brought out, you know, some statistics and said, God, gosh, Craig, you know, you know, chick, uh, uh, you know uh, chicken fried rice, if you eat that, it does something to your taste buds. He could have studies on that, okay? Or if you have cream cheese puffs, that's still Chinese, right? If you have some of that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to do something inside you, you know? It's going to do something in terms of, like, giving you more energy or whatever or make you more tired. I'm not quite sure the part of the day. But anyways, uh, he could talk about sweet and sour chicken. He could have had all these things and, and said, Craig, you know what? The, the studies show it. Also, on top of that, Chinese food is very popular, if you go across the country, especially in the Midwest, Chinese food is very popular. Lian Chin is not Chinese food, by the way, but the other places, that's Chinese food. He, he could have done that. But at some point, I had to try it for myself. And I finally did. And now, I bet you a week or two doesn't go by where I don't have Chinese food for some lunch or dinner. It's the same way with God's Word. I want to encourage you to taste it, consume it, absorb it in your life. 
and allow God's voice to speak into your life. Allow God's power to come into your life. That when it comes to the challenges, when it comes to the blessings, when it comes to uh, the problems of life, that God's voice is so clear in your life and it's true and reliable because we worship a God who is true and reliable. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks for your word. We have nothing like it. There is no book like this. And God, I just think about the, the, the span of history and how your word made it to us today. I think about the early Christians, some that had the only copy of the Gospel of John, and at the uh, tip of the sword of a a Roman centurion, they would refuse to give up that that copy of the Gospel of John and gave their life for it. The pages of the Bible, we must not forget, are full of the lives given to preserve it. Men and women who spent time translating and and, and putting together these words of God. And yes, these are human authors, but God, you are the source. We have to ask ourselves, where would I be without God's word? Where would I be without the Bible? Reminded by the words of Martin Luther, the Bible speaks to me. It's alive, it speaks to me, it has hands, it lays hold of me, it has feet, it runs after me. God, may we embrace your living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said? Amen. This time we receive this morning's offering. And this is an opportunity for us as an act of worship to give back to God what he has given to us in his faithfulness to us, how he has provided for us in a variety of ways. And for us, whether it's 10%, but as a congregation to give back to God as an act of worship.